Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. This is show number 599. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd come down with blastomycosis if you infected me with the idea that you missed this week's show. Service Design. Our 22 NTC coverage continues with Janice Chan sharing her strategies for creating great programs, events, and campaigns that offer value while balancing the needs of all your stakeholders. She's from Shift and Scaffold. On Tony's Take Two, My Three Lessons. Sounds like My Three Sons. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits, Tony.ma slash 4D. Just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Here is Service Design. Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 22NTC, the 2022 Nonprofit Technology Conference hosted by N10. My guest now is Janice Chan. She's director at Shift and Scaffold. Janice, welcome back to Nonprofit Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. It's good to Absolutely. be Absolutely. You're welcome. These NTCs bring us together. This is your third, your third show. Uh, Third time think so. I think so. Third time's yeah, a charm, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yes, but it'll be more charming uh, from next year on. You think you're going to go to the to the uh, in-person conference next year in Denver? Have you thought about that? I haven't thought too much about that because, you know, planning a whole year out is, uh, you know, kind of beyond my brain at this okay. moment. Okay, I, I understand. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I hope to right. be able to attend. I, I think I'll be there. Yeah. I, awesome. I Wonderful. Yeah. Your workshop this year is service design, better experiences for everyone. That's uh, that's pretty broad. You're uh, you're promising a lot there. Everybody's going to be satisfied with service design. <laughs> I am le- promising a lot, and I <laughs> okay. Nobody left out. <laughs> I think that that is. So to give a little bit of a backstory um, for the context in which I was approaching this session and why I brought it forward was, so I was a nonprofit technologist for many, many years. And, um, you know, when I was in, I decided to go to graduate school. I went to school for information management, which is basically about understanding people's information needs and how do we make information usable and accessible and useful to people. And that was when I learned about user experience and then service design. And so when I was learning about service design, I recognized a lot of things that I had done in my nonprofit work. Um, And it was really it really resonated. It also was like, how come I didn't know about this sooner? (laughs) Why don't more people talk about these methods? And a lot of these frameworks, I think, are really beneficial for people who are working in social impact sector, 
And so to as why I think so, right? Service design kind of looks at design is just problem solving, which is what people in the nonprofit sector do all the time. And service design looks at if you're providing a service like an after-school program, uh, managing donor relationships, running a volunteer program, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It looks at the end-to-end experience of like, what's the experience of that person who's going through that program, who's a volunteer, who's a donor, who's even an employee perhaps, right? And what are all the things that it takes to make that happen? So, you know, there's things that the organization, the employees need to do on the back end. There's systems and CRMs and like processes and resources that they need. Maybe there's data that they're collecting, And so it looks at all of these things all together. And for me, that felt very much like what people do in the social sector, right? Because you're, I don't know, running, let's say, a volunteer program, and you want to make sure that like the kids who are coming to summer camp are having a good time, right? Because that's the point of the summer camp. But you want to make sure the volunteers are having a good time because you're not paying them. And then you got to think through, okay, like I need like supplies and I need to schedule people and I need transportation, right? You have to think through all those logistical things. You might have some data that you need to collect for the funders. There's things that like organizationally, your staff is like, you know, hey, we have a policy. We need to like run background checks on the volunteers before they can start all of those things. And so I think that service design offers a lot to helping us think about those how to tackle those types of challenges. And also because we're constantly balancing the needs of different stakeholder groups, right? We've got our community members, we've got our clients and our volunteers and our donors and then like funders and whoever, and we have our staff, right? Different staff have different needs. And so when we're thinking about that, right? Sometimes like the, the power dynamics really balanced in this in this sector that we work in. And so it can be easy to just like default to whoever carries the most weight and whoever like has the biggest amount of influence. And I think that even though service design is not inherently necessarily like focused on say equity, but I think that the frameworks lend themselves to, okay, if we look at this entire picture, we have to ask the question, and it helps us start the conversation. We have to ask the question of like, does it make sense for our organization to run this program in this way, right? Like we want the community members to have a good experience, but also there's things like our staff capacity, our resources, right? Like what does it actually take to deliver this program at the level that we're wanting to to deliver it at and also that safe and you know accessible, inclusive, all of those things, right? And then it gives us the ability to like have that conversation with the other people who are involved um, so, and to kind so of bring a, them into the room. So is this a, a, a framework for a, like a methodology of evaluating existing programs? Uh, and I know it, it applies either to existing programs or to, you know, something new programs, but is it is it is it a, a methodology or is it just a way of thinking or what? Well, let's drill down. Like, what is what 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 is? I understand it at a conceptual level, but how do you execute service design? Or, or you sure. Know? So, service design could be looked at as a discipline, right? Like, graphic design is its own discipline. 
um, computer engineering is. Oh, okay. Display. That helps a lot. Okay. Thank right. You, you can, right. it's about the whole process. Okay. Um, but I think that there are ways to incorporate the frameworks that we use in service design, the tools or methods that we use in service design and incorporate those into nonprofit work to kind of help just balance like all of those different things going on. It's time for a break. Turn to communications, media relations, and thought leadership. Turn to has the media relationships to make you the thought leader. And where they don't have a relationship, they know how to start one and grow it for your benefit. Like, for instance, with the leading state or local news outlet in your area. So they may not know them now, but they can get to know them. And that means you get to know them. And that means you get your message out when you need to be heard, like when there is something in the local news related to your work or the national news, you want to be heard. Media relations and thought leadership turn to communications. Your story is their mission. Turn hyphen to dot co. Now back to service design. Suppose we're evaluating uh, an, an existing program. Mm-hmm. Right, let, let's take because folks, you know, uh, all our folks, all our listeners have programs. They might be embarking on new programs, but sure. everybody's everybody's got got something going on now. So let's let's work with that little that bigger population. We've got something going on now. Multiple programs, naturally, at lots of nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you how do we start to think about? Uh, an evaluation process? Sure. So I think like the way that what we're looking for in within, if you're taking a service design approach to looking at an existing program and how we can improve it, right? The things that you're looking at are, I mean, for every nonprofit, right? This is less a service design thing and, and more of a why we're doing the work we do thing is, is it helping us achieve the mission? Is it helping us like move the needles that we're trying to move, right? You always want to know whether it's doing that, but then sort of like digging down into that further, you want to understand like, what's the experience of somebody who is going through and receiving this service, right? Is that the experience that we want them to have? Like if you're running, like say, a workforce training program, right? Like obviously for it to be valuable to the participant, they need to be able to, it needs to help them like find jobs or be more equipped to find, you know, change careers or whatever it is at the end of that program. But in going through that program, right? You probably at your organization have some values like we want to be inclusive. We want people to feel like they matter and feel empowered, right? And do people feel that way going through that program? So that's kind of like the the first, the top layer of it. And then sort of like the bottom or sort of supporting layers of that are, you know, in order to make this valuable to the organization, right? Valuable to the organization and the social sector is, you know, things like, is it helping us achieve our mission? And also, does it make maybe like sense that we're the ones doing this, the way in which we're doing it, is it sustainable for us given our capacity, given how we're structured and set up? You know, I think that's an opportunity, of course, to like revisit some things. And I think that can come out of a lot of service design work is, I think the biggest thing is alignment. And a lot of the times when 
people are frustrated with the process, whether they're the person receiving the service or they're the employees in the back end that are like, this is just like, we can't keep doing things like this, right? This is really frustrating. It's taking way more time than it should. It seems like really tedious or we're not being equipped or resourced to do the work that we're actually trying to do. And I think a lot of those frustrations come out of misalignment, right? Maybe you started this program 10 years ago and back then, right? Like the way you set things up made sense at the time. And it's easy to let like many years go by and like things are still working, but we never really stand back and take a look at the whole picture to see like, does this still make sense given that probably the context has changed, right? Other things have changed. And so what do we need to improve or realign or make sure is actually supporting the end outcomes that we're working for? Yeah. All right. Uh, right. So these big picture questions are aligned. When you talk about alignment, um, you mean, I, I think, alignment with mission, alignment with the impacts that you want to create in the community. You know, does it, like you said, does it make sense to, for, us mm-hmm. to be, for us to be doing it? And doing it in the way that we're doing it. So, you know, so these big picture, uh, but it is, it's important to step back and be introspective, be, be scrutinizing all the work mm-hmm. that you're doing, because you don't want to, maybe it's better done by another organization or better done vastly different than you're doing it, or just a little bit different than you're doing it. Yeah, um, it can be the little things too. Like right, right. we, you know, are sending these volunteers out and they're not having a good time and you know what? We have really inconsistent training for them, right? And and that could be a thing that's not aligned. We want them to do things in a certain way and feel equipped to do things, but we're not providing them the support that they need in order to actually do that. Um, so it can right. also there be for a, incremental there, improvements as well. Could be right. There, you're right. There, I thank you. There's another level of alignment too. Just aside from alignment with mission and, and impact, but alignment within the program. Absolutely. Right. Just, you know, are are we are we not reimbursing our volunteers sufficiently, or are we asking them to do too much or too little? How do you start to get this feedback from the, all the different cohorts? You've got your service recipients, you've got your volunteers, you've got your staff potentially, very likely. You know, how, how do you start to get the honest feedback as you're as you're trying to be introspective? Absolutely. And I think service is very much a team sport, right? Like I cannot tell you the the frontline picture if I'm not the frontline person, right? I can't tell you what it looks like from that perspective or what would make my job easier. And so I think the really big thing is to upfront, like identify, of course, like who are all the people who are involved, who are all the people who are impacted and people are impacted to varying and involved to varying levels, of course. Um, but just figure out like, what are the questions that things that we need to understand from these people? Like who do we need to get in touch with? And I think just honestly, getting people to sort of participate in drawing the picture of what things look like now. So one of the core tools in service design is the service blueprints. And that's sort of like just mapping out a diagram of like, what are the, all the little bits and pieces that make up this service? And, you know, what does that journey look like for somebody who's like going through, like maybe like we have a summer program, right? Someone who's going through a summer program. 
That's and basically I, like journey mapping. It's like journey mapping with extra layers, right? With the entire back end of, you know, here's the workflow that the employees are doing. Here oh. are the support processes. Here are the systems we use. Maybe there's a data level. It can be really kind of whatever makes sense for your organization. But I think the biggest part is to like getting, you know, and you can get feedback in many ways. Um, you know, the, the research methods you would use in service design are similar to other research you would use in other disciplines. So like interviews, surveys, um, you could do a workshop. So all of these things, right, contribute to, to making up this picture. But I think the really powerful part of getting people from these different stakeholder groups involved in creating that picture is that then everybody sees the same picture and can have that conversation about, oh, like I can see why there is a problem or like these things are just kind of disconnected and we didn't plan for like how somebody would get from step A to step B um, or like, hey, they have like no resources. We have no staff because like somebody left and we never like refilled that position or what, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, it allows people to see, agree on the problems because they can all see them together. It's time for a break. Fourth dimension technologies, business continuity, in case of emergency break glass, then what? As part of 4D's IT Infra in a Box, they'll work with you to develop your incident response plan, which includes who disseminates the tech info? How does IT security change now? What hardware and software changes do we need? What changes IT-wise in the office? And how about remotely? Business continuity is part of the IT buffet, so you can take it or leave it. The same with security, like multi-factor authentication, and their help desk, and IT audit, and training, and a technology plan for you. All these are part of their IT infra in a box. Fourth Dimension Technologies. Tony.ma slash 4D. Just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Let's return to service design. Then how do you start to... Uh makes make change i mean i i imagine you have to have leadership buy into this to this process to this introspection you know how do you study uh if this is a substantial program there's a lot of moving parts how do you start to tweak something and make sure it's not going to adversely impact something else or some other group of stakeholders that you didn't anticipate you know Absolutely. how do you start to tweak these changes so i think the biggest part about the approach of service design is that you're involving so at least you know some representatives from each of these stakeholder groups who can tell you like yeah you can't change that because then this other thing is going to break or if you change that right like we need to figure out how we can address this particular need or, or process or what have you and so by doing that right like i can't know everything like no one person can know every single thing about all the different components of a service or a program right so it's sort of like, let's build up this brain trust so that we're not missing those important things. But to your point, right, like to even start that process, you need both a culture that supports that, right, in terms of we're open to input, we're open to getting 
um, feedback and to taking it seriously and to, to really thinking about like who is getting the most impacted by the service and any changes that we make. And, you know, of course, leadership, right, in terms of depending a bit on like how your organization works, but in most organizations, right, if you don't have buy-in at some of those key levels or for like key people with it, like if you're looking at a program and the program director doesn't, hasn't bought, isn't on board yet, right, with doing this process, then, you know, that's going to be a hard thing to, you, you have to address that first. But I think that like in using participatory methods and helping people just visualize like, here's what's going on, right? Like, I know that you're frustrated and you think it's this one thing, but there are these five other things going on. And I think that offers the opportunity also to show people how it could be better. Because a lot of times, right? And I'm sure you've had this experience, many, many of us have, of it's frustrating, it's annoying, like this just feels like it's not working. Why are we still doing it this way? But like nobody knows how to fix it. But you can't begin to fix something if you can't identify what is actually causing, like what is the actual root of why it's so problematic. And so getting people to agree on that, right? That's a point from which you can begin to brainstorm about what could be better. Or I feel like a lot of times when I do this work, people come out of the woodwork like, oh yeah, like I've been thinking for a long time that this could be better and I had an idea, but I didn't know where to go with it, right? Or I didn't think that people would be on board with changing it. Or I was worried that if I made this change, that it was going to have this ripple effect. And I don't, I don't know what that is. Right. So some of it I think is also kind of empowering people to be, you know, sort of change agents within their, their organizations as well. Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, what else should we know about, uh, about service design? What, what, what haven't we talked about yet that, that you, you shared in your, uh, in your session? So I think that like one of the, you know, I think this is a common common challenge, right, in change projects is that, like, a lot of times they can be so big, right, and it seems so overwhelming. And then, like, the time you get done with it, you're like, is this what we wanted or have other things changed and should we have changed things along the way? So I think in service design and many design disciplines apart, one of the things that you want to do is to keep iterating. And... To your point about like making making big changes and them having those having implications, right? Because you can ask all of the people, get input from everybody involved, and roll something out, and there's still something that you didn't anticipate, right? Like there's just it's just the way of life and technology and particular. Um, but if you roll out parts of the time or you test out little parts of the time. And in test and design testing is really just, I'm going to try a thing with real people and just see how it works out in yeah. the real world, not in this like on the computer, it looks like this lovely flow chart of like how this is supposed to work, right? And then where the rubber hits the road is when you test it out with real people. And then iterating is just like, okay, we tried it. That was draft one. We're going to make some changes based on what we learned from that. 
And so it doesn't have to be like this, like massive pilot program kind of situation, right? Like you could tweak one small thing and just see how that works and then tweak the next small thing and see how that works. That's probably a better approach anyway. You know, I was saying, you know, I was saying big overhaul changes, you know, that that can be upsetting for everybody involved. And, you know, it might mean delays in in delivering the program. You know, it seems like tweaks. Uh, are uh, and then iterating are are is a better way to is a better way to go about changing right and things. and it's different right if you're starting a new program right uh, you might take the big approach because you're sure. starting not really from like nothing is really from scratch right but there's not an existing program that you need to keep operating at the same right. time when you've got something existing i think incremental is a lot better and, it, you know, you can avoid things like, oh, that completely just broke this other thing. But, you know, when we made this change, right, you can go in and fix that and then adjust course as you need to. And, you know, because otherwise it's like it's just you can't do all of the things at once. There's no like staples, easy button. Yeah, right. And it becomes overwhelming and and yeah. creates lack of inertia. So, um, What were some of the questions that you got in the session? So I will admit, I really jammed a lot of content in oh, to no. my session. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get a ton of questions, but, um, but I think one of the things that I would say when I try to explain what I do to other people, first of all, people hear design and they're like graphic design, visual design, right? That's like usually the, what pops into people's heads. Right. But so much of us do design every me. day. Uh, you're, you're stuck with me. I, I, didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even think along those lines. And, and as soon as you said it, it helps understand what, what the practice is. So, yeah, absolutely. Bring me along slowly. I'm trainable. <laughs> uh, I'm trainable, but take it in increments, please. I appreciate right. it. So right. design is really just problem solving. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it's things that we do every day. It's like if you move the dish rack to be closer to the sink because that works better and you're dripping less on the floor, right? Like you're redesigning your space so that you have less dripping wet dishes on the floor, right? You're solving your problem for you. And so we do this every day. Research is, you know, sounds like a big thing, but it's just information gathering, right? If I'm trying to pick new software, I probably like look up, do they have any reviews? What are the features? Maybe I talk to somebody who's using that product at their organization, right? That's research, but we don't necessarily, research sounds big and academic and formal. I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Only that uh, I was going to riff on your example that now that you've moved the dishes closer to the sink, you're getting less water on the floor, but your elbows are, are breaking the crystal. So perhaps, perhaps. And so now you have to iterate, right? You didn't anticipate that. Right. All right. Maybe it belongs on the other side. You're less dominant <laughs> side. It doesn't move as much. It's time for Tony's take two. As you know, as you heard, this is my silver jubilee in planned giving. So I have a uh, blog post to memorialize my three top lessons, takeaways, whichever parlance you prefer. The lessons for the uh, that used to be until they became takeaways several years ago. I've got the three of them, the top three. And the first one is, it's all about relationships. And relationships are much easier 
and hopefully they go much deeper than you might expect. So that's my first thinking, first takeaway from 25 years in planned giving. The others, and a little background, but not too long. Let's not get carried away. Let's not get narcissistic. But uh, some background about my 25 years, my my initiation in getting started in planned giving. That is all in this blog post, which is at plannedgivingaccelerator.com, and then you click blog. Plannedgivingaccelerator.com, click blog. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for service design with Janice Chan. All right. Well, you said you uh, you said you packed your session full, uh, and you've only been talking like twenty minutes or so. What <laughs> what else are you not uh, sharing with nonprofit radio listeners? Maybe a story, <laughs> maybe a case. Did you share a case? An example? Sure, sure. Yeah, so examples are good. Yes. This this was so one of the things that I went through, walked through in detail was um, so I, I talked a bit about research and I talked about different methods, one of which, you know, mapping and diagramming, just like let's get on the same page literally, right? Like let's, you know, take this intangible service of how we, I don't know provide meals to seniors and drop them off at their homes and let's put it on the paper so we can see like where things are misaligned. And so one of the core methods is the service blueprint, which I've mentioned. Um, But I took people through, it's a little hard, I guess, if it's just audio, but I took people through, if you think about, have you ever been a new employee somewhere? Uh, not recently, uh, not in the past uh, 25 years or 23 years or so. But yes, I've been in the past. I was a new employee twice. So you've had the experience of like you start, you don't know anything. There's uh, like where's stuff the bathroom? that you need to where, do. Where, yeah. Where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? Where's how do my I get, desk? How do I how get do you use the copy machine? Off, uh, yeah, exactly. Where, right, where, what's my code for the copy machine? Right. Right. So, you know. I took people through the experience because I was like, you know, I don't know if you're fundraisers, if you're program people, if you're executive directors, HR folks, who knows, right? And so this could work for all sorts of services. But we've all, I think most everybody has been an employee somewhere once. Yeah. yeah. And so I took them through the example. And so service blueprint is like, if you think of a service like a theater production, right? So you have on stage or the front stage is what the audience can see. And then backstage, right? There's like people doing lighting, there's people doing the music, there's, you know, directing whatever it is, costumes. And so the key part of this diagram is always thinking about what is front stage that other people can see and what's backstage. And so I took people through these layers. There are There's the physical evidence, right? So like if you're a new employee, you have maybe... You get an email, maybe you got a phone call from your like hiring manager, right? Like, congratulations, we picked you. Like, here's the offer letter, right? The offer letter is its own piece of physical evidence, its own sort of touch point is, is a term that we we use to call it. And this could be other also things like if you ha- there's a, a website to like enroll in your benefits, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And sort of that next level are things that the 
as a new hire, right? Like I am enrolling in benefits. I am reading this email about what to do on my first day and, you know, things like that. On the other side of that are, there was an employee internally who had to do something, right? Like your manager had to send you that email about what to do on your first day, or HR had to send you, here's the link to the enrollment website for your benefits, things like that. There are also things that are sort of backstage, right? Like as a new hire, you're like, oh, great. I've got a new computer. It's just there, right? You didn't see somebody ordering that computer for you. Mm. So that that's also a thing that's specific to you starting as a new employee, right? They didn't need a computer if they weren't hiring somebody. And so that's specific to you. There are also support processes going on. So when you come, right, you're expecting I will get paid every two weeks or whatever the period is. That payroll process is a support process. So that goes on every two weeks, per, like clockwork. And as a new hire, you would get folded into that. Of course, you would be paid. But when you start, doesn't change that schedule. It doesn't change how that process works. That process is just going to run every two weeks, right? And then there is a system. So maybe, um, for example, there is an HR system, right? And that works together with, with how payroll gets processed. So when you start, your information gets entered into the HR system as a new employee, and that that feeds into payroll and, and possibly other things. So kind of like that's, those are the layers of things. When I talk about the, all of the layers that make up the end-to-end experience so that that service is possible, those are the kinds of the layers I'm talking about. And, and these, are all, these are all included in the service blueprint. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so there's, it, I go through this in the slides, which are in the collaborative notes and, and people can certainly check those out and see that example. Oh, where are those, where are those notes? Those notes, if you attended um, NDC, they're in socio under the session page, you know, so if you went to look up service design, my service design session, sort of you scroll towards the bottom underneath the description, there's a link to the collaborative notes. And okay. I've got tons of resources in there too. Um, I think another thing that I would love to talk about, if we're good on time, is making sure, like there are a lot of ways in which I think in the past several years, nonprofits have gotten better about how do we incorporate our values into our day-to-day operations, right? Like if we value inclusion, right? That's not only about the program that we're running externally in the community, but also like, what does that mean in-house, right? Like how does that, what does that mean about how we treat our staff and treat each other? And so I think what the things that you're doing in a design process, right? I think it's always a friend and I were talking about this the other day, right? That there are a lot of accessibility resources for like accessibility outwards, right? But not maybe as many resources for accessibility inwards for your staff. And so I think, you know, when you're going through this design process, the point is, right, we're not only thinking about whoever is receiving the service who may or may not be external to this organization, but also about what are the needs of the people who are actually like providing the service inside the organization. That could be things like training and, and systems and equipment, 
right? But it could also be about what they need to be successful. And so some of the other things that I touched on, um, I didn't have a chance to get in depth, but I included more resources on some of these topics. Um, one of them was participatory design or co-design. So there's kind of like, there's a spectrum of how much you involve people, right? Mm. There's like, yeah. we're not asking anybody, we're just going to create whatever we think is best. You know, that's sort of like the one end of the spectrum and the high end, right? You might even bring the community members on as, as sort of like project me team members, right? You might compensate them for their time. They get to have a say in the decision-making, right? That's like a really big in terms of shifting power, right? Having a say in the decision-making is a really big piece of that, mm. you know? And then they're sort of like in between is we did some research, right? We got their input, but maybe we didn't, but we, the internal people made all the decisions. And then they're sort of like somewhat more participatory. Maybe they even helped like co-design pieces of it or gave us some ideas, but they weren't involved in the whole project or they didn't really have a final say in the decision-making, right? These are different place, points on that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of debate. There's also like differences in how people label them as co-design or participatory design. Um, so some people are like, yeah, this is all just the same thing, right? The, the whole spectrum is the same thing, you know, and some people are like, no, these are very distinctive like points and we should be clear about them. Um, I also talked the, about uh, the, the, the finer points of uh, arguments within the service des design community. Yeah, within the right. design community, you are talking to each other about what's co-design, you know, what's participatory right, design. Right, but right. I just say that so that when people are looking at the resources, that they know that people will call it different things, and that nobody agrees on, okay. on what these are called. Um, so that's not confusing. And I think the other things are around, like, in order to make things, like, accessible, right? Like, that needs to be baked into the project from the beginning, both in parts of, like, how we're going to think about the process, who we involve in the process. And it should be accessible both for participants, right, your external audience, but also internally for the employees who are working, working at your organization, um, and then the other thing I touched on was trauma-informed design. So trauma-informed design is kind of an emerging area of practice. And it comes from trauma-informed care and social work. So it's sort of, I think people are beginning to recognize that, you know, obviously there are organizations where you're clearly working with people who've experienced trauma, right? Because you're, I don't know, maybe working with abuse survivors or, or veterans or things like that. But the, I think the point being is that there's a lot more that goes on that's unrecognized. And so sort of flipping the switch from assuming that people haven't experienced trauma to if we ex assume that the ex people we're working with most likely have experienced trauma, right? How do we design services or products or what have you? How do we provide care in a way that is going to take that into account and to sort of, you know, 
make make sure that we're not re-traumatizing people, make sure that we're actually supporting and empowering those people. So that's a lot around centers, a lot around, you know, giving people choice, making sure that a space is safe for them, both physically and and emotionally, Um, making sure that we're doing what we can to sort of place the control back in their hands of people, you know, who've had that control taken away from them. And so a lot of those, those, um, a lot of that kind of comes out of things that work that has been done in social work. But I think it's a really important thing to think about, especially for those of us in the in the social impact sector, you know. And I, and then I think the other big thing was like change management. So you know, you talked about this, right? Like, how do you get people on board? How do you get the yeah. leadership on board? And I think that this is really lacking in a lot of service design resources because a lot of service designers. So I wouldn't say that service design is is the most common in the United States, but I would say that probably most people who are working in service design in the United States, there are people who do this work in government. So the federal government, in local and state governments, um, because you're providing service to citizens, right? That's a core part of what our government does, you know. And then there's there's some in like healthcare and, and financial services and things that are kind of a little less simply web-based. Um, but it's not super common. And so the service designers who are working, a lot of them are either at really large institutions or they're external at external agencies. So they can design the thing, they can do the research, they can help involve and pull this design together, but then they're usually handing off the implementation. But I'm going to guess for most of the listeners of nonprofit radio, most attendees of NTC, that that's not the case, right? Like we yeah. are designing, the, you know, we're improving the program right. and then we got to go implement it. It's us. Yeah, it's um, all on us. Yeah. yeah. So really like building in that time for change management. So if like getting external feedback is not something your organization is used to doing, right? Like that's going to be a change internally for how you and your colleagues are used to working. It might be a change for leadership. You might need to get buy-in for that. Um, But also, you know, the the program itself, right? So there's maybe a few people who are starting, like starting something new, but a lot of us were trying to improve the existing programs and services and our existing operational functions. And so there's always that that change piece that you're going to have to build in that time for to just like, Let's spend time on this. Like, let's make sure that we have like people on board before we try to move forward. Otherwise, you know, as you pointed out, it's not going to be yeah. so successful. Yeah. Yeah. Janice, just uh, to, to wrap up, explain your company name, Shift and Scaffold. <laughs> what does that mean? Sure. So I like to think about a lot of the work that I do, but also a lot of the work that we do in the social impact sector in general as sort of shifting the lens, shifting the narrative, maybe we're shifting power, maybe we're shifting like who gets centered um, in the decisions that are made and whose voices get heard. And then scaffold, so scaffolding in education, and so I also like used to be an instructional designer. Scaffolding in education is about when you're teaching somebody something new, you want to make sure that you're building on what they learned already, right? 
you're building on their existing knowledge. And then sort of you add a little bit of new stuff every time. And so I like to think of my work as partnering with people so that when I leave the engagement, right? So like usually I work with people on a project basis or I do coaching. And so like after the end of our engagement, I don't want people to be like, oh, like now we have to find somebody else to do that thing, right? I'm not, you know, that's not the point of the work I do. What I want to do is build people's capacity to carry that forward themselves. So that's why I named it Shift and Scaffold. Okay. All right. Thank you. Janice Chan, Director, Shift and Scaffold. Janice, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. It was great talking with you, and uh, I hope you are doing well, and I'll talk to you again later. Yeah, maybe next year's NTC. All right. Thank you. Thanks for sharing, Janice. Thank you. Take care. Next week. Woohoo! It is the 600th show. The 12th anniversary, the 12th Jubilee. 600 shows next week. That means my fabulous co-host and our creative producer, Claire Meyerhoff, will be with me. Scott Stein, you got to have the live music, the live cheap red wine, plus he's going to do a couple of other songs for us. Amy Sample Ward, Gene Takagi, our sponsors are going to chip in. It's all on the 600th show next week. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT and for in a box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D but they go one dimension deeper. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. Great.